Hello everyone, Craig here. Welcome to episode 35 of Think Relevance the Podcast. We are very pleased today to welcome back once again for his third appearance on the show, Rich Hickey. Uh, he talked to us today about Core Async, the new library for doing asynchronous programming in Clojure and Clojure Script. It's a fun conversation. Uh, before we jump into that, just want to mention a couple things. First of all, uh, in case you missed it, the Closure Conj call for proposals has been extended until Friday, July 19th, uh, 2013. And if you're curious about why we decided to do that, you can go check out the Closure Conj website at closure-conj.org. Um, another thing I want to mention is that there is still time to submit your contribution to the Closure Cookbook, which is a collection of interesting. Um, Writings about how to do things in Clojure, written by Relevancers, well, really written and edited by Relevancers, Luke Vanderhart and Ryan Newfeld, and I, I suspect that we will be uh, having those guys on the show in the not too distant future to talk about that project. Anyway, you can uh, search for Clojure Cookbook and find out more about that. Uh, I think that's all I have for you right now. So we will go ahead and, and get on to the episode, which I enjoyed. Uh, always get a good to get a chance to talk to Rich. So um, I will thank you for listening. to Think Relevance, the podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 3rd, and it is my great pleasure to once again have on the show Rich Hickey. Welcome, Rich. Hi. Hey, so the reason I wanted to have you here today... Oh, no, dummy. The real reason I wanted to have you here today, before I say the other reason, is that I wanted to find out what great new music you're going to play for us on the way in and out here. So what uh, what should we play on the way in here? Uh, how about we play uh, Precious Memories by East of the Wall. I love it. You always come up with something that I'm not familiar with, so that'll be fun to uh, fun to hear. Does that one have particular meaning for you, or? Nope, just fun band. All right, cool, awesome. Well, people are hearing that in the background. Um, so, okay, so I suspect people can kind of guess, um, given the timing of this podcast, why we are talking today. Of, of course, I'm always interested to talk to you, um, and I think yeah, you're our first guest that will air three times. So that's pretty awesome. Um, but the thing I want to talk to you about today is uh, Core Async, a very, very interesting new um, library that uh, you uh, and others have released in the last week. Um, pretty cool stuff. Um, so I wonder if you wouldn't mind giving us a brief summary of what that thing is. What that thing is? Uh, yeah, it's a library uh, that provides some facilities for doing uh, asynchronous programming. Uh, based around the idea of channels. And channels are a little bit like queues, uh, but they have a set of semantics that make them like blocking queues with very particular um, properties. Uh, the thing that makes it interesting 
uh, and more interesting than just, for instance, consuming queues directly in Java, is uh, that we're combining uh, that channel notion with uh, another part of the library, which does sort of inversion of control over your code. So your code appears to be writing, uh, making blocking calls. And uh, with one part of the library, they will actually block the thread you're on. Um, but with a, a different approach, also supported by the library, they'll actually just uh, turn what looks like straight line code into a little state machine and uh, park it anytime a call is made uh, to the I.O. system for channels. Uh, so it'll appear like that you're blocked, and actually what's happening is you're just saved off. So it's a little bit like a continuation kind of thing, but it, there's nothing that looks or smells like continuations to the uh, consumer. The neat thing about that is that that's something we can support both on the JVM and uh, on ClojureScript, on the JavaScript engines. So we'll be able to support the same model. So it will appear in JavaScript as if you had separate threads of control and queues, which is pretty neat because JavaScript doesn't have those things. Right, yeah, that was actually one of the kind of the mind-blowing things. You So I, I, I've seen this information now uh, a few ways. Um, one of the lucky few that was at the uh, Triangle Closure Meetup where you presented this. And then, of course, there's the blog post on the Closure Core blog. Um, and it, it took me a couple times to kind of get that, but but I think, I, I wonder whether you agree whether that is really maybe the, one of the most significant parts of this is the ability to have a, a programming model in the browser via ClojureScript that looks like I'm doing something and then it blocks and then I get to go do something else. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the closure the closure script side is significant, but also the the um, uh, n you know non blocking blocking on the on the JVM side is also significant because people there are looking to make uh, more efficient servers. That can handle more requests, and and in doing so, they don't want to associate a thread with every request. And unfortunately, in trying to do that, a lot of times they end up adopting, you know, an event handling style uh, of programming with callbacks and things like that, which puts the inversion of control in your face and all over your program, making for you know, callback hell they call it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's equally important to provide an alternative to that for server programs um, written in Clojure. So, uh, so I think it's important in both areas because um, obviously that's the only thing that there is in the browser, but it's something people are actively choosing on the server and, and getting a whole bunch of things that I, I don't think they really you know, want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just comes with the event-style programming model. Uh, so what I wanted to do is give them the efficiency of that, but a, a, a straight line programming model in both places. Can you can you expand a little bit? Because this is something I had a slightly hard time wrapping my head around. I mean, I'm not, I'm more of a server side guy, more of a web server side guy. Okay. And so I don't do a lot of things that land me in callback hell. I, w I wonder if you could kind of contrast, you know, you mean explain like oh, this is the thing that happens that's bad, and here's how you get out of it with with the core async approach. Well, anytime you're using an API that's asynchronous, so it could be NIO, it could be um, async HTTP clients, um, you end up having to, you know, hand the the library a callback that they'll call whenever something 
you know, interesting happens. And so that, that means that if you had a piece of logic that wanted to make decisions about, you know, when it wanted to do things and how, uh, it's no longer in charge. That logic is now split up possibly amongst multiple callback handlers and or it has to use state to remember what's happened in between invocations and you know, where does that stuff go? So I think anytime you've handed a callback to a library, you're, you're stepping down into callback hell. Now, a, 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 uh, an application that does a lot of that really becomes a, a different form of spaghetti code because everything's in these tiny little callbacks and uh, you can't get a picture of what's happening or where the decision-making logic is any longer um, because it's had to be distributed. The same thing happens in UI programming, right? That's all callback-oriented, on-click, on-whatever. Um, and there are systems that try to simplify this. Uh, well, first of all, I should say, does that help uh, yes. remind, remind yeah. of, of pain points? Because that, that's where they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, very simple things are fine, but most often what people end up doing in callbacks is manipulating some state and they're going to do it from a whole bunch of places. And that, you know, that's just spaghetti code. It's just a different flavor of spaghetti code, right? Mm -hmm. Have all these different little pieces of logic. And in order for them to work together, because they're being asynchronously invoked, I have to distribute a whole bunch of state manipulation code. Okay, that makes sense. So the alternative with channels is that anywhere you're on the edge where there's this uh, inversion of control, what you do is you just take whatever you're you're being handed. You know, there's event an event happened, something came over HTTP or a button was clicked or whatever, and you immediately just put that on a channel. Then you're done and you're returned. You're done with your callback. Somewhere else, there's a very nice linear-looking piece of logic that says, "I'm going to try reading from one of these three channels." And I may wait this long to do it, and then I may make some decisions. I may send, you know, I may perform a computation on the result and send it to somebody else, and then go look for some more work to do. And that's a beautiful piece of of logic where everything is all together and it reads linearly, and it's in control of itself. It's not being entered from other threads of control. It looks like a thread of control, um, and it, there's no doubt that's the way we would write all programs if there wasn't some cost to um, tying up threads, waiting for other threads to do things. And that's what this library does. It says you can write your program like that and you won't get tied up. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the way you say it, it, it I think you said this exactly, which is if you were just going to write you know, down what you're trying to do, it would be more in that style than in the I'm going to ask you to do something, and then when you're done, you're going to do this thing on my behalf that I told you about. Exactly. And there are lots of practical um, gotchas with those event handlers. I mean, anyone who's ever had someone say to them, uh, don't, too, don't do too much work in your event handler. Uh, it, it's sort of a sideways way of talking about the other problem there, which is on what thread is this stuff going to be run? Um, is it going to tie up the person who's trying to notify the callbacks? Do you have to supply, you know, an executor on which to run these things? Um, there are a lot of things that are left as you know, left to either convention um, or just to the user in trying to make that work and make it work smoothly. Right. So. <laughs> There's a couple things I, I want to hit. I mean, I, I know there's the blog post for sure, and people can read that. But there's a couple things in it that 
that also feel really significant to me that I wonder if you could expand on me. First of all, um, it is completely insane to me that this is a library. I mean, it, it, this works on closure, I think, 1.5 and up. Is that right? Right. And it's not like somebody has to wait for a new version of closure. It's actually just a just a library, which is, you know, that's pretty significant. Was there, I mean, what, I guess maybe what makes that possible, and is that significant somehow in the context of the of the uh, Core Async itself? Well, it's certainly nice to be able to do that, and the thing that makes that possible is macros. Right? Macros allow you to write arbitrary transformations on code. So we have a bunch of code that looks linear, and you know the transformation that has to happen on it is fairly significant. And that's the, the work that uh, Timothy Baldridge did on the inversion of control macro, which basically takes your code, does a full transformation of it into you know static single assignment format, um, and then rewrites it as a state machine uh, that itself, you know, uses callbacks, but it encapsulates that. Uh, so yeah, macros are what make it, what make it possible. Yeah, that that's got to be one hell of a macro I'm imagining because I mean, you, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to like look at. I mean, you, I think it's uh, there's a couple of them. I think one's called Go and one's called Thread. Is that? Am I saying the right names? Actually, those are those are very straightforward. There's really just one one big Kahuna macro that that does the inversion control. Everything else is just a a facade around that. Gotcha. What's that one called? I don't even remember. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, <laughs> it's called Big Kahuna. It's the one that's a couple hundred lines of code. <laughs> okay, gotcha. And so, um, are there limitations? I mean, because because you're you know essentially taking um, actually, this is a question. Can you do arbitrary things inside that macro? Can you do we transform in the library arbitrary blocks of code, or how does that work? Well, first of all, it's important to recognize that um, doing it in a library and doing it in a, in a called out manner, as opposed to pervasively, is where you're, you are making a trade off. So the Go programming language has similar facilities, and because the language is built around them support for it is pervasive. In other words, those transformations are always present and their runtime is, is designed to support it anywhere. So right away by having to wrap something in a block, you know, like a go, we call them go blocks, um, means that we've delimited the space in which we're doing this transformation. It's not happening everywhere. It's just happening where you ask for it. So that's, that's a limit right there, right? It doesn't happen everywhere. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not transparent. Some of the things that fall out of that are the transformations are of operations that must be visible to the uh, transformation macro. So for instance, it will transform all of, and all of your calls to channel IO that it sees. But if you were to try to you know, take some work and farm her off to a function call, well, it can't see inside that call, so it can't transform it. So there's a, there are limits to the composability uh, when you take this approach. Uh, because you can't take an arbitrary subsection of a Go block and put it in a function that the, you know, the Go block can't see the inside of. Uh, right. So it can reach into all of the... All of the um, ordinary flow control that Clojure supports, but for instance, it can't transform across uh, a Clojure boundary, right? If you have a, a, 
uh, anonymous functional a fun um, that in turn inside itself has nested calls. It's just the same as if it was invisible to the transformer. Gotcha. Is that a fundamental limitation or just something that it doesn't do right now? No, it's fundamental. Mm-hmm. It's fundamental again because these transformations are not always happening. Um, right. But you know, again, it's a trade-off. You don't want the overhead of doing this transformation everywhere. Uh, and I, I think it's pretty straightforward. People write the code that does this work um, pretty much in one place. And of course, any of any of the uh, computational aspect of it can be in in functions. Right. Um, but the the I/O part has to be visible. Right. And we tend to structure our code that way already, where we, you know, have a thing that interacts with the uh, I don't know, the kind of the, the, the mutable, nasty world, and then we move it over into a bunch of pure functions on the data. And that, that approach, you know, in, even before channels, has been generally a pretty good one, I think. Right, and it's the same idea here. That's, that's the recommendation. This stuff is for the edges and for conveyance. And, uh, you know, that's sort of also an important point about it, is that it's really for moving, moving stuff around between subsystems in your in your program it's a conveyor belt of sorts gotcha so was there a particular use case that motivated you to this i mean you've mentioned a few things in the abstract you know um ui and, and things of that nature but was there one particular you know problem you were trying to solve that you said okay we got to have this now yeah i mean i think i think vented servers are are something that's become all the rage and and I want to push back on that on that happening to closure uh, because i I see that as just a recipe for a big a big mess um, but I recognize um, the people's pursuit of of efficiency on the server there so i, I that's probably the number one problem it went it was pointed at um, is saying, okay, you want the efficiency of of an evented system without tying up a thread. Um, how can we do that? And there are a couple of other ways. I mean, obviously, you could just have used the same inversion of control kind of thing to support futures or promises. But I think it's particularly nice to combine it with the, you know, CSP style, Go language style channels. I think that they're a nice abstraction and they give you more power because they represent ongoing relationships, not just one shots, not just, you know, RPCs of sorts. Mm, yeah, I never, that's interesting that it models the relationship. I, actually, that's a good segue. So um, you mentioned briefly that channels are a, a little bit like queues. Could you, could you maybe talk about the, the channel concept and uh, how people should think about them? Uh, you can think about them as if they were blocking queues. Um, you know, in the simplest form, there's, there's no buffer. And when somebody comes to write, they'll block until somebody uh, arrives to read and vice versa. And of course, by block, I have that in, you know, that air quotes, right? If you're using the, the real thread co- constructs, it does block a thread. And if you're using the go blocks, it parks the thread, we say. Um, not tying up a thread, but making it appear as if your, your thread of control has has blocked, has stopped waiting for somebody else to do something. So that's a way to convey stuff, right? You're putting something on one end and you're taking it off the other, um, and a way to coordinate because of the blocking. You're going to wait for for people to be ready. 
Um, you can expand that notion somewhat by adding in buffering, especially fixed buffering. So fixed size buffers um, allow some decoupling so someone can produce a little bit more than you're ready for and continue to move on. Um, but the fact that they're fundamentally blocking still means that they, they work well in terms of giving you the kind of uh, flow control you need to build a bigger system without sort of flooding one end of your system with more work than it can do. You know, that back pressure is important. Um, so uh, again, if you've been using concurrent blocking queues from Java, they feel a lot like that, except you're not limited to um, blocking a real thread. Um, the other big feature in channels and in the same kind of CSP thing, I'm not claiming any of this is unique to closure channels. Uh, you know, Go has uh, same kinds of constructs, is um, the notion of uh, selecting from one or more alternatives. So in Go, that's called a select statement, and in, in uh, async channels, uh, it's called alt. And alt allows you to wait on one or more um, of these channel operations, and it will proceed with at most one of them. And that's a very important and extremely powerful construct to build on top of. It means that you can distribute work, you can wait on more than one thing, it's a way to incorporate timeouts, sort of a great little primitive. Um, and uh, you can easily build architectures that do load balancing and worker tasks and things like that uh, in this manner. Um, that's only really been possible sort of on one end of a, of a, say, Java queue. You can have more than one thread trying to consume it, and you can have more than one trying to produce, but you can't really have a single consumer or producer deal with more than one queue. Uh, in a blocking manner, and this lets you do that. Uh, That's funny. I'm actually I'm actually an old Windows programmer, and uh, right <laughs> until you mentioned, I mean, you've you've said this before that Windows has this API that we use yes. in C++ all the time. Wait for multiple objects, ex or something like that. It's a beautiful thing, and when you when you have it taken away from you, you feel really bad. And that's what happened with Java, right? Yeah, well, I didn't realize until now, like until you said it uh, a week ago. You're like. And Java doesn't have this. I'm like, really? They don't have anything like that? I'd never um, uh, run into the need for it. But uh, it was surprising that you didn't have that. Yeah. So, so again, the analogy to queues holds up pretty well, although um, it's a lot more transparent. You make a channel. I mean, making a queue means allocating a queue and basically spinning up a thread to consume it and sort of wiring all that stuff together. And um, using a library like this makes that quite transparent. Um, there are also semantics for closing, which is a difficult thing. Usually with queues, you're on your own. You have to put a sentinel value in there or something like that. Um, so these channels can be closed and other nice things. Yeah, the, the one you mentioned briefly was timeouts. I thought that was super cool, how the, uh, the metaphor for a timeout, uh, say you're reading from a channel, is you use an alt to read both the channel and another, I think it's a channel, that, that will close itself after some, always close itself after some specified time. And so either you'll read from the data channel or you'll get the read from the timeout channel because it timed out. That's correct, right. That's a, that's a Go language feature we copied. Uh, which is quite quite nice. So so the uh, so timeout is a call that returns a channel, 
And uh, what's nice about that is that really reifies the timeout in a way that, for instance, it can be communicated to somebody else, passed around, and or shared. So if you want to set up a bunch of worker threads and say, all you guys work for five minutes, instead of you know passing five minutes around as a number and having each of them have to make their own calls that include timeout as part of the call, um, you just set the time, you create one timeout object and you hand it to all of them. They all just basically read that in their alt and they'll all simultaneously you know, see that close. So it's very nice to have that become first class. Yeah, I mean, the system I'm working on, which as people know, is you know related to RoomKey, uh, the, uh, our wonderful customer, they, uh, they've got a website and you know, like many, it goes off and um, does a bunch of calls to a bunch of other services, but they've got an SLA, right? They've got to finish serving this overall request uh, in some amount of time. And so I, I could imagine, and just having walked up to the library, it is appealing to me to think about modeling that as, you know, my my calls are all, the data coming back from those other subservient calls are all modeled as reads from channels. And there's a, an overall timeout that says, well, you know, the first thing that happened was the timeout failed before I got all the data back. So I better go and produce an appropriate response to the, to the, to the client. I mean, is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, there's tons of architectural patterns that you can build out of these primitives. Uh, that's what makes them nice primitives. So, uh, so I know I've, I've talked to, to Tim Ewald, who we've had on the show, talking about Pedestal, and, and he has said that he has started experimenting with this um, in Pedestal service. And, you know, we've talked a bit about that library, and obviously it has support for, um, currently has support for, for async uh, operations, and he, he said that it, it has, in the initial experimental form, radically cut down on the amount of code that he that, that needs to be in there in order to get those semantics. So it certainly seems promising. Have you seen, have you, have you been working on systems, and maybe you can't talk about the specifics, but have you been working on systems where you've seen sort of similar improvements in the code uh, because of what uh, CoreySync offers? Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't actually talk to that, but I, it would be my expectation to uh, to see that um, both both you know people cobbling this together by hand, ending up with something that's substantially smaller and cleaner, and also people decomposing their systems in ways that they're currently not because they don't have good alternatives. Mm. I mean, there's a certain sense in which just you know A calling B calling C calling D um, after a certain point. Even though it's all functional and and, and whatnot, uh, still can be, become a problem uh, because A has to know to call B and B has to know to call C, uh, and getting that decoupling in place is quite important. And I know I've built a lot of systems, you know, that are pipelined internally using queues and threads, and they would be much cleaner with this. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to see what people do, and then of course, you know, David Nolan's running, uh, running way out there with it already on ClojureScript. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, what's been great is, you know, my 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 vision for this was that it would have these two effects on on event-driven server programs. It would allow us to, you know, sort of get back control in a in a linear fashion that allows us to see what's going on and understand it and make decisions in one place. Um, but I really do think it's a big deal for UIs and for the browser, where you, you simply just don't have an alternative right now um, to callbacks. 
and the the small things he's done already have demonstrated that's definitely going to be the case. So it uh, could be a huge feature for ClojureScript. Cool. Well, we'll definitely point people at um, David's work in the show notes. Um, the, so it actually leads me to ask, too, if people want to get started on their own, do you have like a recommendation for them, you know, things they could look at or, or the sorts of problems that they could uh, you know, tackle as a way to get started with ChorusSync? Well, I mean, I think if you're, if you're contending with any asynchronous library right now that says, give me a callback, uh, you can start thinking about saying, well, all I'd like that callback to do is take whatever I've been informed of and put it on a channel and be done. And then what would be different about my program if I had done that? You know, where could I route that channel? How could I write a completely independent piece of code that consumes that channel and never knows, you know, that there was a callback or what the source is? How much would that change my testability of this thing? Because instead of having create a giant spaghetti network of callbacks, I can just wire a data generator onto the other end of a channel and have the consumer code not know that it doesn't come from a button click anymore. It comes from this data generator. I mean, that kind of uh, independence is super important architecturally. Uh, so I just do not believe in giant networks of directly wired things, whether it's object orientation or callbacks. And uh, now in the blog post, you mentioned um, not being enamored of actors, and that comes up a lot in this context. Is that is that your is that the same as your objection to actors? Is this the idea of the 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 coupling the network of um, the network of dependencies? No, I mean I I think the network of dependencies is is much more about um, callbacks and callbacks wired together and sort of that that network. Um, actors are very much like channels, except the the communication is not oriented at the channel, it's oriented at the receiver. And it seems like a subtle point, but it really is an important point, right? When you order from Amazon, you don't order from Sally at Amazon, right? Because if Sally's sick, who's going who's gonna to fill your order? Um, you order from Amazon and they put it in a queue and whoever's at work that day, you know, fulfills your order and puts it in a box. And that, those cues are super important to the way the world works. I mean, we cannot be all directly connected. And so in an actor system, you have all these, you know, complicated things where, you know, you, you, you morph the identity of the person on the other end in order to have it do something else. Or you build your own, you know, your own version of uh, multiplexing or work distribution because you can only direct something at one person. When a channel is first class, you, you're really decoupled from the consumer. And so my biggest beef is that um, with actors, you're not. You're, you're directing your communication at the consumer as opposed to at the, at the conveyor belt, right? If I have a big, long conveyor belt and my job is to put something on one end, I really just do not care who's at the other end. And that's what I want. As an architect, I don't want to have to know about things that are not part of what I'm doing. Um. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's, I say that casually, but but this is definitely um, something that I need to that I need to dig into, which is part of my question around how people can get started. But I, I really like what you said about uh, you know consider anything with a callback, and if if you just in, uh, put the the all the callback did was put the response on on a channel, I can already see how that would extract any work I would do with the response back into the place where I would want it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's cool. All right. 
Right. Fine. So, and also to, for people getting started, um, there's an examples directory in the repo, which will be growing with more and more examples. But some of them are kind of trivial, just, you know, how do you do the plumbing? One is a walkthrough of, you know, what each call is about and, and how to build up from there. Uh, but hopefully we'll get bigger examples that, for instance, use HTTP or things like that. Also, anything, um, any of the examples from Go uh, would be candidates, and we've ported several of those, and they, you know, they work perfectly well. And so, really, if you've been following Go and you've you've uh, seen some of those talks and some of those um, rationales, they apply here equally well. I mean, basically, we're we're throwing in with Go. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think Go. I mean, definitely credit where credit is due. I think Go made the right choice with first-class channels. I think it's a good architectural choice. And so I'm not embarrassed to uh, follow it. Um, and, you know, we have our own little niceties on the closure side. I think the code is, you know, it's all expression-driven, so it's very clean. We have advantages in having a lot of immutability, so we don't, we're not afraid of sharing things across channels because we don't have the aliasing problems of mutability. Um, also, being a library, alts is a is a function. You know, there are macros that pretty it up, but the fundamental function is something that allows a variable number of alternatives, which is difficult to achieve with language syntax, but it's something we can do as a library. So that gives us more flexibility. Um, so we have we have some you know enhancements, I guess. Cool. Well, that, that, that actually is, is also a good segue. Boy, Rich, it's almost like you gave me a script. He didn't. Um, no, but I, I want to, uh, that is an interesting point because it raises the question kind of where is this thing at in its life cycle? I mean, it's obviously new because you just announced it. Um, but, you know, should people be using this? Is it going to change a lot? I mean, what's the kind of, where is it at? Uh, it's still early days. I would I would reserve the right to uh, change it um, based around feedback. But uh, the point is, if people don't try using it and give us feedback, we can't get past that point. So um, we, you know, I'm encouraging people to try it, to try building things with it, um, and uh, hopefully we can integrate the feedback quickly if there are any things that really affect the way the API might work um, and get them in place. Um, and then, you know, there are various degrees of, uh, of completeness and solidity. The JVM version that uses threads is probably the most solid. Um, and then the JVM version that uses inversion of control, probably next. So, and then closure script. Uh, but you know, like I said, David Nolan's on the closure script and now, you know, voraciously consuming it, which is, I'm sure going to shake it, shake it right out. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than having that guy vetting it for you. Yeah, yeah, and it's great, and uh, you know he gets it, so that's what's fun. Cool. All right, well, I know that uh, lots of people would be mad at me if I took up too much of your time making the world better. Uh, so uh, for, before we go, though, um, is there anything else you want to tell people about Corey Sync that, that we failed to talk about so far? Uh, no, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is... Uh, and I mean, so there was some talk about actors and, and whatever, and, and like, I would definitely want to end on a positive note. I mean, the point is to accomplish things, right? To make programs that are easier to reason about and easier to understand. And uh, so I would just want to go out with people um, approaching this 
from uh, how can this help me build a better system? If it's appropriate, fine. If it's not, you know, it's not supposed to be a be-all and end-all. Like I said, it's a glorified uh, conveyor belt <laughs> uh, in the end. And, and it's important to understand that there are places for conveyor belts and places where trying to make a conveyor belt into something that's not as, you know, it's, it's not suitable. So uh, use appropriately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm super excited. I think the whole thing has been fun to kind of watch it unfold and to get to see your presentation and, and read the blog post and everything. It does, it does seem like an awesome additional tool and uh, uh, even better one that works well with other things, which is always the best kind of, uh, the best kind of lever to get is when you can make it play nice with other things that you already have. Like you, you mentioned immutability. So, you know, that's a, that's a great, a great pair. So, and there's lots more like that. So it's been super cool. Right. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton for coming on the show again, Rich. It was great to get you in the middle of the afternoon here in the middle of the week. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Um, well, we got to go out with a song, and, uh, you know, it's, it's to you to pick it. So what are we going to play? How about uh, Ghost's House by Witchcraft? Witchcraft. I was wondering whether you are going to bring them up. You had mentioned them the other day, and uh, awesome. So people are hearing that right now, and uh, I'll thank you again a ton for coming on, Rich. Uh, congratulations to you and the whole team. Uh, for releasing this library. It's super cool, super exciting to see. Um, really looking forward, just like you, to seeing what people do with it, to um, you know, seeing it evolve and, and, and hearing more about people's success with it. So, so thanks again. Great, thank you. All right, and thanks to everyone for listening. This has been Think Relevance, the podcast.